The series is called Love Defined, and it's really based off of this simple idea in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14.1, let love be your highest goal. Let love be your highest goal. You can have other goals, but, but is love your highest? And, and really been basing this off the, the commandments of Jesus, the, the two commandments that all the law and the prophets hang on, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor. And we've been asking these questions, and, and it's been challenging, and it's been prickly, but, but it's so good to reminisce, to ask, to, to dig in deep on this question. Is the quality of love inside the church better than the quality of love or different than the quality outside the church. You know, I was thinking about this and, and processing this, and it, it kind of, I, I got a picture in my head. Uh, it wasn't like a super vivid vision, but I was just thinking about how many of you guys, uh, uh, judging by the number of glasses in this room, probably a lot, have gone to the optometrist, right? Jamie, this excludes you. She has 20-20 vision. She has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but you go in and they put that big like whatever that's called, that thing on their face, and they're like, what's better, A or B or about the same? And no matter what optometrist you go to, they have that like optometrist voice, A or B or about the same? (laughs) You know? (laughs) A or B, and I'm like, can I see A again? A or B or about the same? You know, and I just, I was thinking about that in, in, in relation to this. It's, it's like looking through a lens. Can you look through the lens, and, and, and if, if it's really that hard to tell, you know, A or B or about the same, we need, to, we need to rally around this idea that God's love should, could, and will make a difference in the way that we love the world, amen? Come on, we, we can rally around this idea that God's love could, should, and will make a difference in the way that we love the world. And so we can clearly distinctify A is the way the world loves, B is the way that God's love is, and it's so much better looking through the lens of, of, of the way God views. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, convicting, and it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. I think we can always relate this back to to 1 John when it says that God is love, when we can say God is patient and kind and, and is not jealous or boastful. Can you put your name in that? Can, 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 could you say, Nicole is patient and kind. Joe is not jealous or boastful or proud. Jacob does not demand his own way. Rosie is not irritable. Could, could you put your name in the context of that scripture? Somebody said no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> A or B are about the same. You know? And, and I think it's so important and, and, and we're laughing about it, and it's good that we're laughing about it. <laughs> because we have to ask ourselves this question. And it's the title of this message is this question. Is our love like Jesus? See, First John says this. It says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. 
And that is one of the most convicting scriptures I have ever read in my entire life. Sue Hadley gave me a, a bracelet that I still have. I'm so blessed by that. Thank you. Uh, it's a, it's the, the classic WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? I love that sentiment. I actually, though, wish that that bracelet said, what did Jesus do? Because we don't have to sit and wonder. We can, we can actually know. We can actually look through the documented, the biography of Jesus and know what he would do. And, 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 and here's the reality of the situation. And I now say, I, I say that statement a lot, but, but it's so true. That the way that Jesus treated people is really, really important. And I think in the church sometimes, not just this church, but the church, the global church, the big C church, I think that believers sometimes, myself included, have gotten it twisted a little bit. And we put moral standard as more important than the way that Jesus treated people. And, and the world looks at the church and they see a very strict, staunch, narrow viewpoint based on the fact that moral behavior is really important. And, and it is. But I think that we have a really bad reputation in dealing with certain sins. And, and, and we categorize some sins as really bad sins, like you shouldn't do these sins at all. And if you do do these sins, it's over. And some sins as more okay to deal with. And I think it comes from the basis of teaching of morality, not just in our country, but across the world. Because it's obvious that we can look at things in the world that are happening and determine that consequentially they are terrible, right? Like everybody could look at, at the way that, that Hitler behaved uh, back in, in, in the 40s and be like, that's awful, no one should do that. And consequently, that should be a really bad thing and a very punishable offense. And we know that and we see that and determine that versus somebody who like lied on a test. Like we've, we weigh those things as different because they should be consequenced differently. But I think that the important thing that we have to understand here is though we look at sin as though it were a graph and some sin is higher in consequence and some sin is worse by standards of morality, God looks at it like a map and he sees it's all the same. And so whether you sinned in a very, very little way or you committed mass murder, you have fallen short of the glory of God. And we've all done that. We've all been there. That's why we needed Jesus is because the biggest sin to the smallest sin created a chasm that nobody could get across. And I think that's very, very important for us to understand because the reality is to love and live like Jesus did, we have to understand that God's love accepts us in our sin. It, it, it does. Right, the most popular passage of scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right, and in Romans chapter five, verse eight, it says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. Whether it was a really, really big thing or a really, really little thing. And I think that 
that as a church, we have the reputation of being really staunch on the big stuff. And we use it as an avenue of comparison. And I don't think that's what it was intended for, right? Well, I might gossip a little bit, but at least I've never murdered anybody. I'm like, great, you're setting the bar real high. (laughs) And then we look at what Jesus said that you can, you've heard it say, don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you hate somebody in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. And so, so I think that we have to be very careful on how staunch we get about sin because it affects the way that we treat people. It does. I think unintentionally I've seen some of the church become very pharisaical with the way that they deal with sinners. But the reality is God loves sinners. He did, but he did before anybody did anything good or bad. He had already formulated a plan of salvation before it all and in spite of it all. You see, Jesus actually lived this out too. The person of Jesus lived out this principle. He spent his time with prostitutes and tax collectors and zealots and sinners. One of them, uh, the tax collectors back in that time were like the equivalent of a mob boss. You know what I'm saying? Like they were thugs and they had Roman soldiers that were thugs. And if you didn't pay what they wanted you to pay and, and more, because tax collectors' money came off of the backs of what Rome decided was, was official, right? This is how much you owe Rome. Tax collectors actually made their money by getting more than that. So this is where we're going to get to Rome, but I'm, I'm going to charge you more than that because I got to get paid. That's how the tax collector system operated. And so they were heavy-handed. And the more heavy-handed they were, the richer they got. And Jesus looks at them and he's like, you're coming with me. I think if Jesus came back today, he'd be going after the mob bosses and everybody would be freaking out. Like, you know what that guy did? And this was the response. And Matthew was one of them. Look at this. It said this. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. He was hanging out with sinners so much that the religious accused him of being one. Like he was guilty by association. Matthew 11, 19, it says the son of man and On the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Are you afraid of being guilty by association? Am I afraid of being guilty by association? This is a challenging question. Jesus did not live that way. I would love to say that if Jesus came back today, he'd come right into this door. But also there's a part of me that would be really, really nervous for that. I wonder if Jesus came into this door, would he be pleased with how we love people who don't believe what we believe? Would he be pleased 
with the way that we showed affection to the unbelieving world? Would our love be reminiscent of his for them? That's some heavy questions, and it got real quiet. Even the kids got quiet. (laughs) But it's so good to ask ourselves these questions. It's so challenging. It's so encouraging when, when we can see the love of God poured out in this way. I promise you guys one thing. I was the kind of person that didn't belong in church. I was the kind of person that, that people would have looked at and said, there's no way that guy's coming in. And by creating a narrative about my past and who I was at that moment, very few people tried to show me this love. I asked myself so many times, why didn't somebody tell me this sooner? accepted Christ at 19, I felt like I was trying to catch up. <laughs> and so we, so we can ask ourselves this question. You know, God is, is very specific. Jesus is very specific on the, on the type of person he wants to be and the type of people he's calling us to be. He called this out in the church, in Ephesia, the Ephesian church in Revelations, he says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but not, and you have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Man, that sounds encouraging, right? That sounds like a kind of thing that you would want Jesus to say. He says, but I have this complaint against you. Oh, no. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from the place among the churches. Dang. That sounded really like it flipped real quick, right? And I think, I think we find ourselves in this place we come to an acceptance and, an, and a revelation knowledge of who Jesus is and, and it's exciting and he saved us from our sin. Or even if we grew up in the church and, and we've understood from a very early age that, that all of us were sinners and, and, and that Christ died for us and nobody is in a different boat. That the depravity of man through sin and sin nature has left us all stranded and Christ came to save us. Somewhere along the line though, that gets twisted and we, we grow, we get sanctified and, and we grow in knowledge and we grow in abilities and God gifts us in certain ways. And I think even for me, if I'm being honest, that created a piety in me, a, a, a piety, this, this pious nature that felt like I was better than because of what Christ did for me instead of acknowledging that it was all him in the first place. And that's convicting, church. That is so convicting, But even inside of this, there's an encouragement that we can repent, that that we can, I almost fell off the stage. (laughs) Just a little bit. Just pumping a little. 
And I think the scary thing for us is because we don't understand fully the work of Christ. Because yes, it's true that God loves sinners. Yes, it's true that he loved the whole world. But God does not affirm our sin. And that's the second point. This is the second half. All of the things that we have said are true, that God loves people so much he died for them. But he doesn't affirm any of it. And this is the difference. This is what separates this message from the message of the world. Why? He doesn't endorse sin because sin is the reason that we're separate from him. It is a cancer that will destroy us spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and even physically. And so, yeah, he accepts us. He calls us in wherever we're at. But he doesn't allow us to stay in that place. And that's so good. And so we need to keep our hearts clean towards people who are still in that process. But, but I want you to understand this is the heart of Jesus. It says this. Um, you, you guys remember the story uh, when the woman was caught in adultery and she was drug out into the street to be stoned to death because according to Jewish law, that was like the custom. You, you're caught in adultery, death. You steal from your neighbor, death. Like, and it was stones. And it was crazy. And Jesus happens to be there. And he looks at them and he bends down and he, he starts writing in the sand. And I would have loved to know what he wrote. Do you ever wonder that question? What was he writing? Maybe he was just drawing a Jesus fish. I, I don't know. <laughs> but he began to write in the sand and then he gets up and he says this in John chapter 8. He says in verse um, 6, I believe he says, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of a crowd with the woman. He stood up and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. See, Jesus didn't love this woman by becoming pro-adultery. You know, he, he didn't love this woman by saying, no, no one condemns you, so go ahead and go back to doing whatever you were doing. He actually has a commission for her. He actually has a calling for her. And for her to walk in the fulfillment of that, it requires a repentance of sin. He was saying you were walking this way, but now I want you to walk this way. You see that, that moment, what happened, what changed for her? It was the goodness of Jesus. You see, love does not rejoice in injustice. First Corinthians 13 again, verse six. It does not rejoice in injustice and unrighteousness, but rejoices whenever right and truth prevail. For Jesus to affirm her unrighteousness would not be love. It wouldn't be. I think this is the other 
the, the other extreme in which the pendulum extreme, uh, swings that, that in order for us to actually love people, we have to be fully tolerant, fully uh, open and willing to just ac- accept the sin, to just let people walk in darkness. And that's just not what Jesus says. His plan for redemption was always transformation of heart and repentance. It says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. It says that the goodness of God leads to repentance. And that's the point. That's the point. And so we're engaging in this discussion. And, and, and I think it's so important that we understand these truths. And, and honestly, we're going to dig into something here as a barometer to test our love. Because I don't think that the global church, the Big C Church, has by and far done a really, really good job at, at this particular topic. How do we love people well who are sinning beyond belief? How do we love people to the point of showing them the goodness of God? And I'm going to pick out one area that I, and it's going to feel prickly, and I know that, but it's okay because God is good. I really think that the way that the church treats gay people is really, really rough. It's really rough, and, and, and I want to give us some things here to, to look at. I'm going to call this five ways that the church can love gay people well, and this can apply to any people, okay? Maybe you're not one of the people that struggles with this. Maybe, maybe you are. Um, I've walked through this in a really, really tough way o- over my Christian walk, and, 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 and I want to use this because I think that this is an area that overall we haven't done a good job at, and I think that we can do better. Amen? I think that we can do better. And so the first thing here, five things that we can do, let's just stop assuming. Let's just stop assuming. So many people have left the church because they courageously went to their leadership and told them, hey, I think I'm gay. I think I'm struggling. I think I'm this, only to be dehumanized and disgust, as a disgusting individual. Did you know that 83% of non-Christian LGBT people grew up in the church? 83% grew up in the church. I want you guys to watch this video. Uh, it's by Sam Alberry. Um, I know we're running out of time here, but, but this is really important. And I think it gives perspective for us. Um, uh, we'll watch this video, and then I'm going to continue. Go ahead, Ash. Uh, that, that first question is very, very significant, and it, it's, not, it's, it's sort of on topic for, for this evening, but certainly, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, talking about same-sex attraction being part of my own journey. What I was meaning by that was, um, as a teenager, I became increasingly aware of romantic and sexual feelings towards other men. Uh, Became a Christian then when I turned 18. And so then a significant part of my discipleship was what does it mean to bring those experiences under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And obviously a a key part of that is is honouring the teaching of Jesus about... The, the godly and appropriate place for sex being within the covenant of a, of a marriage between a man and a woman. So I, I knew I would have to, to, um, to say no to those desires in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Um, is same-sex attraction 
a sin. Sounds like it, it, it only requires a monosyllable to answer it. And I hate answers that always begin with, well, Webster's defines. But we, we need to be very clear on what we mean by attraction. Um, some people use the word attraction to mean the capacity, what some people would call the orientation. Is it a sin to have the capacity to be attracted to people of the same sex? And I would say on that issue, I don't think it is a sin. Um, all of us will experience certain forms of, of temptation. Virtually all of us will experience certain forms of sexual temptation. Uh, we don't tend to choose the particular form temptation takes. What is our responsibility is how we respond to temptation. And the Bible is very clear that we need to, we need to flee sexual sin. So the Bible makes a distinction between temptation and sin. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, deliver me from temptation, but forgive me from, you know, forgive us for our sins. So that the experience of being tempted is not in and of itself a sin. It is, however, a reflection of the fact that we have a fallen nature, that we're even tempted in these ways is a sign that we are, we're not the way we're meant to be. Uh, that we have the capacity to be tempted, in that sense, is a sign that we're fallen. The temptation itself is not a sin. If we indulge the feeling, even only within the privacy of our own minds, that is a sin. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, that if someone looks with lustful intent, he's committed sexual sin in his heart. So it's not enough to say, well, I've got the feelings, but I'm not physically acting. Jesus says, actually, if we are mentally acting... That is a sin. So temptation isn't a sin, but indulging feelings and fantasies, looking with a certain intent, is a sin. So even before we've begun to physically do anything, we've already committed a sin. And by the way, that teaching of Jesus convicts every single one of us. Um, that, that first... Isn't that true? That teaching of Jesus convicts every single one of us. And I think this is why we have to be careful in our assumptions. If 83% of those people had a loving response to an issue that they were dealing with and a temptation that they were going through, how different would our church look today? I, I, honestly, how, how, how it is so convicting to me that 83% of these people that could be leaders in the church under the lordship of Christ are now leaders for a completely different segregate idea opposed to God's will for them. That is intense statistics. See, because God loves us so much. But we want his love to turn us into the people he wants us to be. I think the other thing that he, he touched on, and, and this is a super important, important, and I don't know what important means. It's a super important point. <laughs> is that we, we got to be careful not to be hypocrites. Right, like I said at the, at the top of this message, we have, we have such an emphasis on certain things, but, but there are a ton of sins in the church that are happening all the time that, that we just think are okay because it's not this big monumental thing, right? 
As a 350-pound man, as your pastor, I assure you, gluttony is a sin. It comes in the form of potluck, for me at least. Why does nobody talk about potluck? You know what I'm saying? Don't stop potluck. Let's just, let's just, let's just get, our, let's get the proper mindset around this, okay? Because when we get into that pious, that, that, that better than mentality that, you know what? I'm not as bad as this person because the, I only struggle with potluck. We, we tend to miss the point. Here's something that applies to all spectrum of relating to people. Would you just listen? Just listen. I've been very convicted of this lately. I realize that I've listened in my life just enough to respond. You know what I'm talking about? You listen just enough to know how you're going to rebuttal a conversation. That has been so convicting for me. This is, you know, like Paul, like in the area, like I'm, I'm a... I'm a sinner along with the rest. Like, this is like my worst area. God has been convicting me so hard. Just listen. Be slow to speak. Slow to become angry and quick to listen. I'm going to read you a passage here. It says in Colossians, it said, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I want to highlight one word in that scripture, and that's humility. Be humble. Be humble. I promise you, if you could stop assuming what people are dealing with, assuming what their lifestyle is, assuming who they are, if you would choose to to be introspective. I heard it said one time, love the sinner and hate your Hate the sin, right? How many of you have heard that? Show of hands. Love the sinner and hate the sin. I want to challenge you today, today, church, to love the sinner and hate your own sin, okay? Would you just love the sinner and hate your own sin? So if you choose to do that, if you would listen and if you would be humble, then the last thing here would become a natural inclination of your heart to be gospel-minded, right? To stay focused on the gospel, Jesus comes and he offers an invitation, right? John the Baptist said it. Jesus said it multiple times. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Repent. Because all of the things that God wants to do is right in front of you. He wasn't out looking to call people sinners. He was looking to show them the kingdom. The reality of the situation is when you look at what Jesus did and how he behaved and who he was around, he didn't actually call out anybody's specific sin at all. Not even a little bit. It says this in in Matthew, it says, in chapter 9, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want to show mercy, 
not offer sacrifices. Jesus quantifies this by this statement. He says, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. He didn't have to point it out for them. They knew. I think somebody who's struggling in, in, in homosexuality, somebody who's struggling with, with, with that thing or, or with anything, somebody who's murdering people, they got to know that it's wrong, right? Everybody else in the world is already telling them that they're wrong. Everybody in the world is telling them that they're wrong. They already know. I think it's the church's response to not just tell them that they're wrong, but to just show them who is right. Amen? It's just to show them who's right. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And if you can do the other four things, this one will come really naturally. Because the gospel is not about sin management, is it? It's about the fulfillment of all of the purposes of God through his son, Jesus. Our job is to love well, to be kind, patient, compassionate. It's to tell people that there's a place at the table. Even if they're in sin. Our job is not to tell them where they've messed up, where they're wrong. They know. That's actually the Holy Spirit's job. It's actually the Holy Spirit's job. I've been caught so many times since 2007 when I gave my life to the Lord trying to do the Holy Spirit's job. Never works. People's response usually are, who are you? And that's actually the right response. Who am I? <laughs> Colossians 3 says, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And the peace that comes from Christ, let it rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Would you guys stand with me this morning? I know that in a, in a series called Love Defined, it, it's going to feel like we're going to preach a feel-good message that has not been this series. It has been very convicting, very powerful. But I think that's okay. I think what God's doing in this place goes beyond how we feel in a moment. And I truly believe that, that he's calling us, church. He's calling you to be his hands and feet and to show his love to a world that desperately needs it. If Jesus were to walk in this church right now, would he be proud of our love? And honestly, I'm looking out and I'm, I'm seeing some of your guys' half faces, but I'm, I'm seeing you. And there's people in here who inspire me to love more like Jesus. There are people right now in this room that I can say, if you don't know what to do, just, just do what this guy's doing. Do what this girl's doing because they love him real well. And so I know this feels heavy-handed and we're preaching in the choir, but church, I think we're right there. I think we're right there. 
on the cusp of God's kingdom exploding in this place. And I think it matters how we respond. I think it matters how we treat people from the perspective of Jesus' lens. And so I encourage you guys today to chew on this, to think about it, to wrestle with God. And if you haven't been doing a good job, it's okay. <laughs> like the Ephesian church, there's an invitation from Christ right now to repent. Let's turn our love on. Let's put down the self-righteous attitude, if that's you, that's been me, it's okay. I repent in front of all of you guys right now. Let's go into this world and share the love of the Father that sent his son to die, not so that we would be good people, but that we would be alive. Heavenly Father, we just pray right now in the mighty name of Jesus. We come in humility and we ask God that you would just have your way in our hearts. Have your way with our lives. Holy Spirit, we repent for trying to do your job. Lord, would you teach us how to love, how to speak, how to act, how to move like you did. Your word says that we would have done even greater things than you. Teach us how. God, show us to love like that, that the empowerment of your love can manifest itself in ministry that people need. And Father, we do. We choose to cast off the heaviness right now in Jesus' name because we know that these things are possible because your spirit lives in us. We can rejoice. We can give thanks in all things, God, because it's not over. Because you've done something in this place and you're continuing to. And so, God, we can be open-handed and lighthearted because we know that this is you who moves. And we'll be responsible for our part and trust you with yours. In Jesus' name, amen.